In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds took at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go, and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their eyes heavy, their ears heavy, and blind their eyes. Lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Now in the world of Hollywood, a crisis demands a hero, someone to save the day. In the new James Bond film, No Time to Die, Bond is recruited by the CIA to find a kidnapped MI6 scientist. I won't spoil the film for you, largely because I haven't seen it, But we all know Bond is a great example of the kind of hero we think is needed when a major geopolitical crisis develops. Someone supremely confident in themselves, charismatic, talented and above all successful. Well, chapters 1 to 5 of the book of Isaiah, which form the introduction to the book, introduce the major geopolitical crisis facing God's people in the 8th century BC as they warn of the judgment that the people of Judah and Jerusalem were facing via the twin threats of Assyria in the present and Babylon in the future which together cast their shadow over the whole book. And in chapter 5, the chapter before ours today, we learn that Judah was herself responsible for the fate which confronted her because of her rebellion against the God who'd done so much for her. In the second half of the chapter, God even pronounces a series of devastating woes against his people, declaring his anger against them. 
Things have hit rock bottom. And so as we get to chapter 6 and the beginning of the first of the two main sections of the book, the stage is set for a hero who will sort out the problem, who will successfully rescue God's people from their enemies and restore them to right relationship with him. But what we actually get in chapter 6 is not what we might expect. Because while the chapter does include the commissioning of a man to deal with the issue in question and does tell us of the mission he's given, it's a far cry from the kind of hero and mission we find in Hollywood. Because the man God chooses, the prophet Isaiah, rather than being the swashbuckling, confident hero who will single-handedly rescue uh, Israel through his own brilliance, turns out to be a terrified, reticent man, unfit for the job in hand, even by his own admission. And the mission he's given, far from involving glorious conquest over foreign powers, or even a successful turning of God's people from sin to serve him afresh in a moment of national revival, would instead include a message of judgment against the people of Judah and be a ministry that would be widely rejected, ignored and despised. Seemingly a ministry of failure, in other words. It's not James Bond, is it? And yet chapter 6, along with the more positive second commission that Isaiah has given in chapter 40 at the start of the second main section of the book, is God's response to chapters 1 to 5 and to the sin of his people. God's response to the apostasy of Israel and Judah is to commission Isaiah for a very surprising ministry. And we're going to look together at this response and Isaiah's commissioning this morning under two main headings. So first of all, a terrifying vision. A terrifying vision. You see, what kind of hero is God going to raise up to rescue his people? Who is the go-to MI6 special agent the heavenly court turns to in a moment of existential crisis? Well, the answer is this man, Isaiah. But the problem is, Isaiah is no different from the people to whom he's to be sent. He's part of the problem. And so Isaiah 6 begins by showing us that Isaiah himself needs saving. Just as the beginning of the book of Exodus, if we're familiar with that, records the salvation of Moses, presenting it as a pattern of the salvation of the whole people through, through Moses, which it then goes on to describe. So God's dealings with Isaiah in chapter 6 are, in a sense, a picture of what God will need to do for all Israel if the problem of their rebellion is to be resolved. So while we need to be careful not to apply everything in this chapter directly to us, because there are a number of ways in which Isaiah was unique in being given a commission which we haven't been given, he is, in another sense, representative of all of God's people, showing what must happen for atonement to be possible. Isaiah had to be saved before he could be sent. And while his sending may have been unique, his salvation was not. And so I want us to observe a number of aspects of Isaiah's salvation that we notice from the terrifying vision he receives under this first heading. So first notice that Isaiah saw the Lord. Isaiah saw the Lord. Let me read from verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. 
Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. I don't know if you've ever been to a commissioning event of some kind. Perhaps think of a graduation ceremony at university or army graduation at Sandhurst or an ordination service in a cathedral perhaps or even a coronation. They're austere events full of pomp designed to convey the importance of what's going on. Well, the setting for Isaiah's commissioning makes each of those commissionings look very trivial in comparison because he was given a vision of the throne room of heaven. The Lord himself is sitting on the throne in all his splendour and glory. And so vast is he that just the train of his robe fills the entire earthly temple, the place where the heavenly king meets his earthly people. And just as a coronation might be attended by dignitaries and prime ministers and bishops, in attendance here in the heavenly courtroom are the heavenly beings, the seraphim. And so terrifyingly awesome is this God that even these heavenly creatures have to cover their eyes in his presence. More than that, the foundations shake and the whole house is filled with smoke, a picture of God's awe-inducing presence. And just notice in verse 3 what the heavenly beings say to each other. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. As John was saying earlier, in Hebrew, holy, holy, holy means holiest, the most holy one. Total, absolute holiness. So these angels are declaring God's complete purity and otherness, which is what holy really means. God is set apart from us. He is unique. He is without sin. He is terrifyingly glorious. And the whole earth is filled with his glory. I wonder what we think it might be like to encounter God face to face. C.S. Lewis once wrote, Some people speak as if to stare into the face of absolute goodness will be fun. They need to speak again. Because you see, the true God, the God of the Bible, is terrifyingly awesome, holy and glorious it would be an unimaginably frightening thing as Isaiah discovered to be in the presence of this God as we are these verses remind us that God is so much bigger so much holier and so much scarier than we so often think he is the Lord of hosts the commander of the heavenly armies he's the one so big that the train of his robe fills the enormous temple he's so holy that even seraphim have to cover their eyes in his presence and he sits on his heavenly throne ruling over the entire world that is his I wonder if you notice that contrast in verse 1 Isaiah receives his vision in the year that King Isaiah died There's a deliberate contrast here between King Uzziah, who seemed to be in charge, a king who'd started well but had fallen through his own pride, if you read 2 Chronicles 26, and the true king, the Lord, who Isaiah saw sitting on his throne, high and exalted above all others. 
As Isaiah puts it at the end of verse 5, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Unaware to all outside the throne room of God, Isaiah, after 52 years on the throne, was about to die. But the Lord reigns on his throne forever. He is the real, eternal king. We so often view our world through worldly eyes. We think the Isaiahs of this world sit on the throne. We fear God has lost control or that it's more sensible to serve the rulers of this world and their often ungodly agendas. But Isaiah 6 lifts back the curtain of heaven for us and shows us that God is seated firmly on his throne and outlives all rivals. And for Isaiah to be saved and therefore to be fit for the mission for which he will be sent, he first had to understand this. So for those of us here who are Christian believers, I wonder if the God we know, the God we serve, the God we speak of, and the God we fear is this God, the God of absolute majesty, of utter holiness, and of awesome glory. Because unless we see God like this, we won't see our sin for what it is, and we won't see our need for salvation. So easy, isn't it, to have a small view of God or a man-centred view of him. But Isaiah 6 blows any such ideas out of the water. The God of the Bible isn't our buddy or a divine life coach or fairy godmother who exists to meet our whims. No, he's the king, the Lord of hosts. He is terrifying in his holiness and glory. And therefore, Israel's sin and Isaiah's sin and our sin matters. So Isaiah saw the Lord. But notice also that Isaiah recognised his sin, and we'll begin to move more quickly now. Chapter 5 had contained six woes, six pronouncements of judgment against Judah. But chapter 6 contains a seventh and final woe, a woe of which Isaiah himself is shockingly the subject. Let's read verse 5. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, before the presence of a holy God, Isaiah was no better than the rest of the people. Sure, he may not have rejected God in the overt ways many of them had. But before the kind of holy God described in verses 1 to 3, no one can stand. We all merit his judgment. Things had gone wrong for King Isaiah when he desecrated the temple in 2 Chronicles 26 and was struck down with leprosy, rendering him unclean for the rest of his life. But here, Isaiah is also unclean. He's a man of unclean lips, dwelling among a people of unclean lips. He was no better off than the rebellious people and no better off than the rebellious king. And having been confronted by God's glory, he knew he was lost as he was. Moreover, as a man with unclean lips, he was not fit for the preaching ministry to which he was being called. You see, those who see God as he is also see themselves as they are. 
If we understand the divine nature correctly, we'll understand human nature correctly. Before holy God, we are lost, unclean sinners. You may have read this week of a secondary school head teacher in London, not a Christian, being widely criticised for tweeting her belief in original sin, with some calling for her to be sacked. The SNP member of Scottish Parliament, Neil Gray, responded by saying, Children are not born bad, children are born good, and I would suggest trauma, poverty and negative influences of adults are what drive negative behaviour. But this desire to see humanity as naturally good is one that fails to account for the holiness of God. We're all unclean people by nature, unfit for relationship with a holy God. Will Louis and Nathaniel were reaffirming their baptismal vows earlier. And of course the reason why some Christian parents will take their children for baptism as babies is precisely because of an understanding that children as they're born are not naturally good, that they need washing, that all of us before a holy God are left wanting. Charles Simeon was one of the great preachers of the 18th and 19th century, ministering in Cambridge for over 50 years. He was a man like Isaiah, whose ministry was underpinned by an understanding of his own sin and unworthiness. He once wrote, There are but two objects that I have ever desired to behold. The one is my own vileness, and the other is the glory of God in the face of Christ. And those two things always go together, as they do here in Isaiah 6. Understanding the glory of God will lead us to see the vileness of our hearts. So Isaiah saw the Lord, and he recognised his sin. But then he also received God's salvation. Isaiah received God's salvation. Let's read on from verse 6. Wonderful verses. Then one of the the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. What wonderful words they must have been for Isaiah to hear. And notice Isaiah does nothing to contribute to his salvation. A coal is simply taken from the altar, touches his lips, and his guilt is taken away and sin atoned for. Again, the context is relevant here, I think. The reason King Isaiah, the the king at the time, had been struck with leprosy was because he defiled the altar by burning incense there, even though he wasn't a priest. His uncleanness, in a sense, uh, represented that of the people. The altar was the place of sacrifice and atonement, and he failed to understand that he couldn't make atonement for himself. But here, from that same altar, atonement comes to Isaiah. And of course, we know if we're Christians, that the altar at the temple points forward to the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, prophesied later in Isaiah, which brings cleansing from sin for all those who put their trust in him. Atonement is possible because Jesus has sacrificed his own life on the altar of his cross that unclean people like us might be forgiven and stand in his presence. 
So Isaiah's commissioning for the ministry recorded in the rest of the book begins with a terrifying vision of the awesome God sitting on his throne. This leads Isaiah to recognise his sin and receive God's salvation. Conviction leads to confession, which leads to cleansing. But as well as a terrifying vision, Isaiah 6 also records a terrifying commission. And that's our other main heading, more briefly, a terrifying commission. It's noticeable that the coal from the altar in verse 7 touches Isaiah's mouth, his lips. Back in verse 5, his lips were unclean. But now they've been cleansed and so have been prepared for the preaching ministry to which he is about to be commissioned. But what was he to preach? Well, let's read from verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes. Lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Having been saved, Isaiah is willing to serve. And that's always a hallmark of the saved person, a desire to serve the Lord. But the particular unique commission Isaiah was given was very surprising because it was above all a message of judgment. A message of judgment. Isaiah, in effect, is told that his preaching ministry would be a total failure. Can you imagine it? Isaiah receives this extraordinary vision of God and then is told to preach to the people and tell them that they won't understand or perceive what he's saying. Worse, he is, through his preaching ministry, to make the people's hearts hard and to bring spiritual blindness and deafness. Rather than his ministry bringing revival, Isaiah's ministry would confirm God's people in their sin and God's judgment against them. His role was to be like that of an oncologist who has to give bad news or the foreman of the jury who has to announce a guilty verdict or the surveyor who has to write off a building because it's structurally unsound beyond repair. And Isaiah's commission here is a reminder to us that faithful gospel ministry won't always be successful in a worldly sense. Many will reject it. As Isaiah tells us later, and we thought about earlier, God's word will never return to him empty. It will always accomplish the purpose for which it's sent. But that purpose will sometimes be to harden or judge And of course, this is exactly the response which Isaiah's ministry met. So Isaiah 6 is, I think, there partly to assure the original readers and us that despite appearances, despite rejection, as Isaiah's ministry was authentic, the rejection he experienced was actually a sign of this. It was what God told him to expect. It was the purpose of his preaching. Often Isaiah 6 is taught as a kind of model for service where we're told to put ourselves into Isaiah's shoes and say, here I am, send me Lord, for whatever service God may wish us to do. But while I'm sure there are some lessons that we can learn here about being ready to serve, these verses aren't primarily a model for us. We're not Isaiah. We're not given the terrifying commission he was given. We're not to preach the same message he was. We're not Isaiah in this passage, but the readers. 
And these verses show us we can have confidence in everything Isaiah will teach, even when it's uncomfortable, because we see here that he was commissioned by God himself. And the importance of these particular verses are evident from how they're picked up in the New Testament with regard to both Jesus's and Paul's ministry. So please turn turn with me, if you would, to the New Testament and Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. It's always good practice to see how the New Testament understands or uses Old Testament teaching. And this is one of a number of times where Isaiah 6 is quoted. In fact, the Isaiah 6 language of dull hearts and deaf ears and blind eyes in many ways sets the context for Jesus' ministry in the Gospels. But for now, just look at Matthew 13 and verse 14. We're on page 986, page 986. Matthew 13, 14, Jesus is explaining why he speaks in parables. And he says of the people of his day who were rejecting his ministry, verse 14, Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, and then he quotes from Isaiah 6, our passage. So Jesus tells us that the true fulfilment of Isaiah 6 wasn't simply in Isaiah's ministry to a rebellious people in the Old Testament, but came through Jesus' own ministry many years later to the equally rebellious people of his day, who are, of course, described by the Gospel writers as having dull hearts and ears that are deaf and eyes that are blind. But just look how Jesus continues in verse 16. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and for your ears, for they hear. Although they may not yet have grasped it at this point in the Gospels, that the disciples like Isaiah were themselves unclean and needed atonement, Jesus was telling them that through their ministry he would be forming a new people of God who would see and hear. Perhaps look up the final few verses of the book of Acts later where Paul quotes from Isaiah 6 in a similar way, again using these verses as a description of the Jews of his day, but saying that God's salvation would therefore go to the Gentiles, to the nations instead. And this brings us on to the glimmer of hope that we also find in these verses, the glimmer of hope. Back in Isaiah 6 now, and in verses 11 and 12, we see again that Isaiah's ministry will lead to a terrible judgment, to exile, But have a look at verse 13, the last verse of our passage. We're told, and though a tenth remain in it, in the land, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felt. The holy seed is its stump. The land will be judged, burned, but a stump will remain, just like a forest might regrow years after a forest fire because of one seed that remained intact or one stump missed by the fire. And this stump, we're told, will be the holy seed, or as the footnote says, holy offspring. Back in chapter 4, verse 2, we were introduced to the branch of the Lord, which will be beautiful and glorious, and which will bear fruit among the survivors of Israel, those who survived the judgment. It's a great contrast with the vineyard that follows in chapter 5, whose branches fail to bear fruit. And the question is, where will these branches that bear fruit come from? From where will the branch of the Lord arise? Well, here we get a little hint. Because the stump of this tree will be the holy seed or offspring. It's an idea we'll see 
developed in chapters 7 and 9 where Isaiah prophesies the birth of a child or offspring in those famous Christmas passages. Or look on uh, a couple of pages to chapter 11 and verse 1. Chapter 11 and verse 1. Notice the same language here. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump, same word of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The glimmer of hope in Isaiah 6, in Isaiah's ministry, who will bring an end to the judgment of exile and bear fruit as Israel should have done, will be one in David's line on whom the Spirit of the Lord shall rest. And because Isaiah is one long book and it's easy in a long book to lose our bearings, I want us to finish by going to probably the most famous passage in the book, to the servant song in Isaiah 52 and 53. So please turn there uh, before we finish. Isaiah 52 and 53. And we're now on page 742. Page 742. Many of us will be familiar with Isaiah one of the servant songs that we get in the later chapters of the book which describe the servant on whom God's spirit rests. And again, the horticultural imagery which runs throughout the book is in view. Verse 2, have a look. For he, the servant, grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. This is the fruitful seed or stump or root or branch prophesied earlier in the book. But have you noticed before how Isaiah 53 is introduced at the start of the song? The song starts at verse 13 of chapter 52. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. Do you recognise that phrase? In other words, this servant who will be despised, rejected and crushed in chapter 53 is none other than the Lord Isaiah saw sitting on his throne in Isaiah 6 who was also high and lifted up. And what would he do? Verse 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Do you see the deliberate contrast with and reversal of Isaiah 6? In Isaiah 6, the people of Judah would respond to Isaiah's message by not seeing and understanding. But in Isaiah 53, those who have not been told, the many nations of uh, verse 15 of chapter 52, will see and will understand as they're sprinkled by the suffering servant in his death. Why does that matter? Well, because the application of Isaiah 6 for us is neither to be like Isaiah, we're not Isaiah and our message is not the same as his, nor are we like the people of Judah and of Isaiah's day whose hearts were hardened. No, we're the many nations of Isaiah 52 who can see and can understand and can be cleansed because the holy stump of Isaiah 6 grew up to be the suffering servant who died that our guilt might be taken away and sin atoned for. The application of Isaiah 6 for us is that we don't need to fear the judgment described there, but are to look to the stump, the holy seed, the Lord Jesus Christ, who despite being the one high and lifted up, the holy God whose glory fills the earth, was yet willing to make himself low and stoop down to rescue sinners like you and me. Shall we pray and thank God? for that wonderful truth.
some words from Isaiah 40, the second of these two great commissions Isaiah has given, uh, which uh, set the trajectory for the two main parts of the book. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge this morning that we are those who cannot stand in your presence, that we are people of unclean lips, dwelling uh, among people of unclean lips. And so how we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who sits on the throne and yet who is willing to stoop low as the suffering servant to die on the cross to make atonement for our sins. And we thank you that because of him, because of the holy seed, we can be comforted, that our iniquity can be pardoned, and that we can stand in your presence as forgiven sinners. We praise you afresh for that this morning and pray that you would give us a new grasp of your glory and of the wonder of your salvation. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.